gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And we have a returning guest, Sheila Gregoire. And we're going to talk to her about her new book, She Deserves Better, Raising Girls to Resist Toxic Teachings on on Sex, Self, and Speaking Up. So thanks for joining us. For our listeners, we had her on previously about the great sex rescue. If you haven't heard that episode, definitely check it out. But Sheila, before we dive in, can you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. So first, thanks for having me back. Um, and thank you for not reading a huge long bio because I hate those. I know the publicist sends them out, but, um, yeah. So I, I've been in the Christian mommy blogging space since around 2008. And then the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew. And so suddenly I found myself this Christian sex blogger, which no one grows up thinking, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to be the Christian sex blogger. But there, there I was. So I started writing books about sex, um, did a ton of research. And then everything changed around four years ago when I started reading other evangelical books about sex and marriage, which I had never done because I was afraid of plagiarizing. Um, and I figured they love Jesus. I love Jesus. We must all be saying the same thing. And when I read some of those books and saw how toxic some of those messages were, we really took a huge uh, 90 degree turn in our ministry and decided to do some really big research projects uh, to evaluate how different messages have affected specifically women and our marital and sexual satisfaction. So this, um, so your newest book, tell us about that, um, about it, and also what kind of motivated you to write it. Well, when we wrote The Great Sex Rescue, which was our, our big one that was out two years ago, we surveyed 20,000 women and we said, hey, here's a whole bunch of teachings that are common in evangelicalism. You know, did you believe them? And so we were able to to measure people who did believe something with people who didn't and see how that affected marital and sexual satisfaction. And if you look at Amazon, we've got more than 2000 reviews now, 
overwhelmingly women said, I feel validated. I feel seen. This is great. But then they all came to us and said, but now I have absolutely no idea what to do with my kids because I feel set free, but I grew up hearing all this toxic stuff. I don't want to teach them toxic stuff, but I also don't want the pendulum to swing to the other side. And I'm saying to my 14 year old, go do whatever you want. You know, so, so what do we do now? And that's what, that's what she deserves better is about. We, we surveyed another 7,000 women to find out about their experiences as teenagers in church and what they were taught and what messages they believed as teenagers in church, and then looked at how those affected women long term. So then we could figure out, yeah, this is really toxic stuff. But also here are some things that women do need to hear and understand. Um, I, I wanted to thank you. I, I really enjoyed and appreciated uh, the Great Sex Rescue and then also this book. Um, and I can, I'm glad that you took the time to um, address these teachings. Um, I wonder if you would talk just a little bit about the research that went into this book. I know both you mentioned already some of the the study that you did, but also um, some of the books and things that you researched in order to compare in this book. Yeah, so we we kind of did uh, a four prong approach. <laughs> to all all of our books have four four research prongs. So first, we do obviously the big survey, um, and there's three authors on She Deserves Better. So there's me, and there's my daughter Rebecca Lindenbach, who's our survey designer, and she also does our qualitative research. So our focus groups, and then there's Joanna Sawatsky who does all our stats. So I I don't do stats, I don't understand it, but she does, and that's wonderful. So we all have different gifts. Um, so we did all the crunching of the numbers, but then we also did focus groups. Uh, we did a thorough lit review. So uh, all the peer reviewed research into evangelicalism, into teachings, how that affects girls into self-esteem. Um, and then we did a lit review of the books that were written to teen girls. And we tried to find the ones that sold the best and they were quite culture forming. Um it was a little tough because there aren't actually books that are, that sell today to teen girls very much. Mostly today, girls just don't read books. They they have influ influencers they follow on Instagram or on TikTok or on YouTube, and that's where they're getting a lot of their information. But a lot of the books that were really prominent in the early two thousands into the into the aughts, um, those are the ones that still affected the youth pastors. And those messages are still there, even in the Instagram influencers. Um, they're just parroting it back because that's what they were taught. And so we thought, hey, if we can teach you how to recognize the toxic stuff in these books, then you'll be able to recognize it when your favorite Instagram influencer says something. And one thing I wanted to tell our listeners, because um, I know Rachel and I both enjoyed it. And here we are, the mom of sons. I, I think there's I think there's a lot in here that's useful in um, kind of thinking about these subjects, which I think a lot of people are right now. So I I personally think it's useful even beyond just, um, you know, a parenting book or raising daughters. So you talk about the importance of self-esteem for girls and young women. Could you discuss why it's important? I think this is one of those topics that gets kind of misunderstood and some weird views on it. Yeah, like Dana Gresh, who's one of the big authors to teen girls to young girls, uh, she says quite a bit, we don't need self-esteem, we need God esteem. So self-esteem is bad. Um, it really depends on your definition. What I can tell you is that 
There are measures of self-esteem in academic literature where it measures, um, do you think that you are as good as other people? Do you feel that you have certain things you're really good at? Um, how confident are you? Do you think you're always wrong? You know, there, there's really good measures. There's a, um, a question set that we used uh, that has been previously validated, used on many different surveys. And what they found is that when you score highly on this question set, you're more likely to have good relationships. Um, you're more likely to have better mental health. You're more likely to have better job success. Like it, it has good outcomes everywhere. Whereas if you score low, it has bad outcomes. And when we hear self-esteem, we often think that that means I I think about myself more highly than I should. But it's actually very important to realize that you were created in the image of God and that you matter and that you have giftings and that you're important and your voice deserves to be heard. You know, Jesus said that we are to love others as we love ourselves. He didn't say we are to love others more than we love ourselves. He says we are to love others as we love ourselves. And so it is important that we value ourselves. And if you don't value yourself, you're not going to protect yourself. Um, So I think self-esteem has gotten a bad rap and we need to bring it back. Yeah, I appreciate your discussion on on self-esteem. As you were reading the various books and resources out there. And, and like you mentioned, it's, it's not just coming from books from lots of different um, uh, influencers and materials that are out there for girls. Um, what are some of the harmful messages that our daughters are hearing or encountering in Christian circles? Oh, there's so many. Um, I would, I would say that a lot of the really negative things that we measured relate to boundaries. It all comes down to that. Like if you don't have high self-esteem and you go to a church where they teach that you need to come last. So it's Jesus first, other second, you last, and everybody else takes precedence. And you hear things like Jesus gave up everything for you. So how can you hold back? If someone else needs something, how can you hold back? You don't want to be selfish. And when you grow up in that environment, you think that actually wanting something or um, if you feel uncomfortable around someone drawing some boundaries around them would somehow be sinful. And that is the root, I think, of so many problems um, when we don't know how to set boundaries, when we don't understand that, no, I, I actually can say no to something, then everything else follows from that. Um, and a lot of us are ta- feel like if God gave up everything for us, then I am selfish. <laughs> if I want time to myself, if I don't want to talk to this nerdy person or this really awkward person, if, if this boy is constantly asking me out and making me feel bad, I can't just blow him off because that would be rude and he might be sad and I'm supposed to love him. Um, and, and we can hear these messages and it follows us into all our different relationships, whether they're romantic or friendships or, or whatever. Um, and we let ourselves get walked all over. And Jesus didn't do that. It's amazing when you read the gospels, how much when Jesus was overwhelmed, he would go by himself. He would leave when the crowds were crowding around him, wanting him to heal and people needed him to heal. And he would just walk away. Um, because he knew there was a bigger vision. And he didn't just give in to what people wanted from him. He followed what he knew was the bigger vision. 
And often our girls, especially, are just told that you need to give everything up. And we're not told that it's okay to protect yourself so that you are able to do the things that God actually has called you to do. I think that's so important. And just um, talking about boundaries, I wish I would have even understood understood that better, even just in when my sons were young. But speaking of boundaries, uh, one of the things you say is your daughter is not a giving tree. So could you talk about that statement and why, why you talked a little bit already, but if you want to add anything about why um, boundaries are important. Yeah. Do you know that story from Shel Silverstein, The Giving Tree? It's Yes, this, I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah he, he wrote it to kids. And it's a story of this apple tree. And um, he th- this boy comes and starts hacking off his branches and uses his branches for all kinds of different things. Um, and then by the end of this, this boy's life, he's now an old man and he sits on the stump and because this tree gave everything for this old man. Um, and And the thing is, if he had just not cut down that tree, he could have been enjoying apples with his grandkids, but he ended up using that tree for all kinds of different things and then it's gone. And our girls need to know that they aren't someone who needs to hack off all of their branches or let other people hack off their branches to use. Your girl is, your daughter is not someone to use. Um, and nor, nor is your son, by the way. Um, and and it's it is okay to have those boundaries and to say no wait a second you're not being safe for me uh and because you're not being safe it's okay for me to say no i think i think we forget like people think well if jesus gave up everything you need to give up everything but jesus gave up everything for a reason jesus gave up everything so that we could be reconciled to god and Often we believe that because Jesus gave up everything, we need to give up our privacy, our comfort, our whatever. Um, so even if some boy is being awkward or some girl is calling us and texting us at all times of the day saying, I'm bored, what are you doing? And you're trying to study, but you feel like you can't tell her that because you would hurt her feelings. But Jesus didn't die so that people don't get their feelings hurt. You know, Jesus didn't die so that the awkward person doesn't learn that, hey, you need to get better social skills. You can't keep treating people this way. Um, <laughs> Jesus died for a reason. And so it's okay for girls to have boundaries because we need to keep in mind the bigger reason too. And the bigger reason is what Jesus has for us. It's not so that everybody around us can be comfortable and can be relieved of any kind of pain so that we can bear all of that pain. That should never have been ours in the first place. That's very insightful. And like Colleen said, I wish that I had learned better about boundaries um, much earlier in my life. It would have made things a lot easier. Um, you know, you know, um, you guys are all Gen X too, right? Like we're all we're all about yeah. the same age. I think we're all Gen yeah. X, right? Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of funny because um a lot of what we did in She Deserves Better was looked at some of the toxic messaging that was specifically there in purity culture. And so in our mm-hmm. book, like we talk about boundaries, we talk about identifying toxic people and consent and modesty and and sex ed and a lot of the issues that come in purity culture. And for my daughter, who was one of the co-authors, it was the modesty messages. Um, mm-hmm. For others, 
of millennials that I've talked to, it was the consent messages that really resonated with them. But for everyone who was Gen X in our launch group, it was all the boundary stuff (laughs) (laughs) because this is what we experienced in, in high, in youth, in youth group in high school was this idea of giving everything up for Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were never taught about boundaries. So for me, it was, it was, it was really the emotional health chapters that spoke to me in the book. Mm -hmm. Whereas for millennials, it was often the other stuff, but you know, even as Gen X women, (laughs) We got we got given some toxic messages too, even before purity culture. Absolutely. Yeah. To kind of place me, like I was in college when people were reading Passion and Purity in college. People were reading uh Lady in White or the something like that. Lady in Waiting. Lady in Waiting. Mm-hmm. Uh that's the book I famously threw across the room um in college. <laughs> um my husband read uh I Kiss Dating Goodbye late in college and it influenced our relationship, but it was not something that was, you know, mine particularly. Uh, so it is interesting to kind of where we fit. Um, there's a couple of places and I, I'm pretty sure it is in that boundary, those boundary and emotional health chapters. There are a couple of things that you said that I thought were just really very helpful, very insightful. Um, you wrote far too many evangelical circles have made themselves unsafe for girls because they ask girls to put their safety on hold for the sake of making predators comfortable. And then you also wrote, if our daughters are trained to believe that their needs and beliefs matter less than other people's, they are more likely to end up with a husband who treats them poorly. And very profound. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the connection between what our daughters Uh, our sisters are taught in their future relationships. Yeah. So one of our outcome variables that we were looking at is what is the likelihood of marrying an abuser? So for a lot of these teachings, for a lot of these experiences kids had in church, we would try to trace it throughout throughout women's lives and say, does this make you more or less likely to marry an abuser? Because as moms, nobody wants your child to marry someone who's abusive. That's probably the worst thing that we can imagine for them. And it's amazing how much, even though we would all say that we don't want our kids to marry abusers, how we often orient youth group so that girls are expected to put up with some level of abuse. So for instance, uh, we have one story in the book that actually related to my daughter, my oldest. She was 15, 16, maybe. And there was an 18-year-old guy hanging out at youth group who was super creepy and scary. He had... um he he had sexually assaulted several girls at the high school, and this was widely known. Um, in high school, he hadn't been allowed to come to several classes because of this. Like this, this was a guy who was known to be dangerous. And Rebecca went and talked to the youth leader and said she was not comfortable having him there. And the youth leader said that she was being judgmental. Um, against someone who was just weird to her and that she needed to understand that he needed to hear Jesus and see Jesus. And so we needed to let him come to youth group. And Rebecca's comment was, I wasn't worried about him being weird. I was worried about him being dangerous. But the youth leader told her that was wrong. And they were, it was one of those nights where they were doing the 30 hour famine or something where you're sleeping over. So the boys in the youth group all did the buddy system with the girl so that no girl was ever alone in the church. So the boys took care of the girls to protect them from this guy, but the youth leaders did not. 
And we heard similar stories in our focus groups of, you know, pastors who would invite a guy who had been known to sexually assault girls to part to a graduation party or something, even when there would be girls who had he had assaulted there because, well, don't you know that this boy needs Jesus? And so girls are consistently asked to place their own safety under this boy's apparent need to hear about God, even though he could hear about God in many other ways. And I think when we're, when we're taught that, that our safety doesn't matter and that we aren't as important as what this boy needs or wants, it's very likely that we will marry someone who agrees with us. And that's the problem. I just wanted to, to add it. It resonated with me. And I remembered something from when I was in, in college that I hadn't thought about it in years. And it was a similar situation where there was a guy, it was a fairly small group that we had. It was a guy who was a little bit older, kind of on the fringe of our group, but he was coming to the the meetings and he was making a lot of us very uncomfortable. And we were a pretty friendly group, very open. Um, but this guy was making us uncomfortable. And we went to the the leadership and we're like, hey, you know, is there anything we can do? This guy is really kind of creeping us out. And I didn't think about it at the time, but our leader was like, absolutely. He took care of it, told the guy, you know, better if he goes to other things and not to this. And it was, I was thankful looking back on it, considering the examples that you gave, that it could have gone so much different in a much different way, that that would have been more common. Um, but I, I was thinking about it. I hadn't thought about that in years about being in that kind of situation. And I can Imagine how uncomfortable it would make me feel if I knew the leaders didn't have my back either. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually surprised. I thought your story was going to go in a very different direction. So that, that is good to hear. I remember being on a missions trip when I was 19. I was in North Africa and um, I was being physically groped and assaulted on public transit quite a bit. And if I if I talked to the leaders about it, they would reprimand me um, or they very much encouraged me not to talk about it because the other girls were not getting as groped as I was because I was blonde and they were not. Um, and so it was seen as like I would be bragging that I am better looking or more desirable or something. And so they would not protect me. <laughs> wow, that's awful. Yeah, it was just so twisted. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of the material out there for teens and even preteen girls focuses on modesty and dating. And I I don't, I know that you said um, before that, uh, that a, a lot of they're getting a lot from TikTok and social media. So I don't know much about the current things, but I think even some of the older books get circulated around. So what what sort of messages are in the stuff that's out there for for girls? There's yeah, and let me add and um and what better message can we teach? Yeah, so we we knew that the modesty messages were going to be harmful and we wanted to drill down on it as to why. So we measured four different iterations of the modesty message. Um to try to tease out some of the differences. So uh, we asked uh, if they believed um, boys are visual in a way that girls aren't, or uh, boys can't help but lust if a girl is dressed like she's trying to entice it, or girls have a responsibility not to be a stumbling block to the boys around them. And then we just said, a girl who dressed modestly is better than a girl who doesn't. Um, And we let them fill in the blanks about what better meant. And every single one of those is harmful. 
And we see we see them in different ways throughout our materials, throughout um, what pastors say. But there are some that are more harmful than others. And interestingly, I thought that the most harmful one would be the one that a girl has a responsibility not to be a stumbling block. That was harmful for sure. So don't say it. <laughs> but the worst ones are actually the ones that talk about boys' natures. So if you believe that boys are visual in a way that girls will never understand, or that boys can't help but lust if a girl is dressed like she's trying to incite it, those are the ones that have really, really bad outcomes. Um, so the other ones, for instance, 25% higher chance of experiencing vaginismus. But if you believe the ones about boys, you've got a 52% chance, higher chance of experiencing vaginismus. You have a 68% um, higher chance of marrying an abuser, 30% higher chance of having low self-esteem. Um, so really destructive messages. And I think what's going on is when we teach girls that God created boys to objectify you and there is no alternative, then we're creating a world where girls can never be safe and where our dreams for real intimacy are just pipe dreams. Because if boys can't help but lust after you, if boys are always visual and they're always going to be objectifying you, um, there was another thing we measured that boys can't, boys have a difficult time stopping when you're making out. And so girls are responsible for stopping the sexual progression because boys can't. You know, when you believe those things about boys, that they cannot help it, they are sex crazed maniacs, um, you just live in an unsafe world. And then when men treat you badly, you don't realize this is a guy who's a predator. You think this is just a typical man. And so you're way more likely to marry an abuser. Um, and yet these messages, these modesty messages, they're probably the most harmful thing that we measured. Um, they're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. In uh, one of the most horrifying examples uh, was was the curriculum secret keeper girl put out by Dana Gresh. It's for girls eight to 12. And I actually used it with my daughters. I bought it because I was thinking I should really do more Bible studies with my kids. And I went to the Christian bookstore and there was a whole display of them and nice, happy little preteen girls smiling on the cover. And I, I really should have read the back in retrospect, because when you read the back, it was all about their outer beauty and their inner beauty and and how to figure out modesty and I mean, who cares? They're like nine and 10 and 11, but whatever, I bought it. And we only did the first date and then I realized how toxic it was. But as we look through that curriculum for writing She Deserves Better, we found one where it actually had girls raise their hands above their heads and said, now, if you can see any of your belly, then the clothes are immodest and you can't wear them. And the reason is because bellies are intoxicating to men. And Dana then has a conversation script between moms and daughters where she invites moms to explain to daughters what intoxicating means. And it means that it's like men are drunk, like they're out of control. And God made women's bodies and girls' bodies to be intoxicating to men, but you're only supposed to be intoxicating to one man, your future husband. So you have to cover up so that you don't inadvertently intoxicate a man. We told eight-year-olds that the sight of their belly makes a grown man out of control. Like, holy cow, how did nobody see this? That's pedophilia. That is straight up pedophilia. 
And that wasn't the only instance. We saw this throughout our resources. It is horrifying. How did we ever get to the point that we are blaming little girls for adult men getting out of control? You know, that's, um, I, I was also shocked. I've, I've read some of those. I've been around like the secret keeper girl type things. Like I've seen them, but I had not that quote. And it really, it was shocking to me too. Um, yeah. Um, when you're talking about the dating messages, and as I mentioned with my husband and the, uh, I guess dating goodbye, the, the funny part of that, um, is that when he called to ask me out, um, what he asked me was, do you date? And <laughs> I knew why he was asking, right? Like I'd, I'd heard enough of this in the background, but, um, you know, I just kind of smiled to myself and, I was, I wanted to answer well in theory, but not much in practice um, (laughs) because that was my life, but I didn't also didn't want to scare him off. So I just answered yes. And then I waited and he's a very calm, quiet kind of guy. And it took him a couple minutes to get up the nerve to say why he was asking me that. Uh, It's a great story, but um, I remember being kind of amazed that this was the question going on around us because everyone I knew dated, you know, like they, or they, they would date if they're asked for a lot of us that weren't dating went. Um, so just again, fascinating kind of where I fall in that spectrum. Um, but um, aside from the boundaries and that, the part about dating, the thing that really um, in the book that really resonated with me was the last chapter, which is about ways that girls are taught to make themselves small so that mm-hmm. boys feel big. And these were very familiar to me. Um, And I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about that and why these messages are so harmful. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. So first, this is this is all really, really sad when you think about it. But we're going to start with something that I think is funny, just because if you don't laugh, you'd cry. So uh, the idea that girls talk too much. This has been recognized as a measure, a good measure of internalized misogyny for quite a while in academic literature, like the belief that that women's voices don't matter as much and that women talk too much. And so we did measure that in our survey. Did, did you believe girls talk too much? Do girls talk too much? Do you believe it now? That's actually a phrase, girls talk too much, that's used in Shanti Feldon's book for young women only. She says it. Brio Magazine was always telling girls repeatedly, we have several articles um, where women, girls talk too much, boys don't like girls who talk too much. And so we asked, you know, do girls talk too much? And it was, it was widely taught. I remember teaching it at a marriage conference because it was part of our curriculum that women talk twice as much as men, that, uh, women speak 25,000 words a day and men only speak 14,000. Um, and James Dobson was the one who first said this in 1983. And Gary Smalley followed it up. I think the numbers changed to like 50,000 words and 25,000. And then someone else said it was 12,000 and 7,000. Like the numbers kept changing and there was never any citations, but it was always the same idea that women speak twice as much as men, twice as many words as men. And Dobson used it to say, so, so women, when he gets home from work, 
He's already used all of his words, whereas you've only just gotten started. And so your instinct is going to be to want to just talk at him to get all your words out. But that's the wrong thing to do because he's already used all his words. So you need to be silent. And and this is what Christian women were taught. You need to be quiet. Men don't like girls who talk too much. Um, well, researchers started to notice how much this meme was being spread in Cosmo, in Vogue, in this Christian literature that women speak twice as many words as men. So they actually measured it. And there's many people who have measured it. There's meta-analyses on this as well now, and multiple studies. And what they have found is that there is no statistical difference in the number of words women versus men say in a day. It's completely made up. I don't know what Dobson was basing this on, but it's completely made up. <laughs> And I remember being taught that, and they Me had too. never met my son, who I <laughs> promise you can out-talk anybody. <laughs> totally. No, I mean, obviously, there's going to be individual differences, right? right? Like Indi- that's, be, yeah. It's more individual and personalities and other things. Yeah, but if you look at women as a whole and men as a whole, there is no statistical difference. The only time there's a big difference is when you're in a mixed group. So when you have both women and men in a group setting, and in that case, women don't speak enough. It takes 80%, a super majority of females in a group before women will say their fair share, whereas men will almost always say far more than their fair share, given their percentage makeup of the group. So it's the problem is not that women talk too much, it's that girls don't speak enough. But we have told women this, you are better being silent. And think about how much... Um, messaging in the church goes towards how you should be silent. Emerson Egrich in Love and Respect, he loved saying that. Women, you need to be quiet. Win him without words. You know, your words are dangerous. Your words are bad. And so they were trying to get women to not speak. And then if that didn't work, we had a follow-up, which was to tell women, well, women are easily deceived. So that's why we don't want your words, because you're probably deceived anyway. And so we don't need to listen to women. Um, Again, not true. When you actually look at studies, women are actually less likely to be taken in by financial scams and things like that. But because people believe women are more deceived, they are more likely to be victimized. So people are more likely to try to take advantage of women. But on the whole, women are less deceived. Even if you look at in evangelicalism and Christianity, women tend to believe orthodoxy more than men do. We tend to believe fewer heretical things than men do as a whole. So it's not that women are easily lied to or believe lies, but this is what we're largely taught. Women are easily deceived. And so we need, you know, we we need to be silent. We need to realize that men's opinions probably matter more. And then our role is to boost the egos of the men around us. And there's some horrifying examples of that in books like For Young Women Only by Shanti Feldon, where, you know, she she talks about how your role is to be men's cheerleader, boys cheerleader, and you want them to feel like they can take on the world because every boy wants to feel like a superhero. And so, you know, your job is to be like Mary Jane to his Peter Parker. And you know what? Boys aren't superheroes. <laughs> um, and and it's not a girl's job to make every boy feel like a superhero. But this idea that we can't speak up. So if she gives an example of like, what if you know more than a boy about something? And she gives she gives instructions on how not to let him know that you know more and to still make him feel like like he's a leader. And it's like, no, you're allowed to just know more. 
You're allowed to be more competent. Your job is not to boost the egos of all of the boys around you. I I remember reading that Dobson thing, but one of the things when I was early married and I would read something in one of these books, the worst one was The Excellent Wife, but I would ask my husband, I'd say, is this true? You want me to be quiet? No, it's not true. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I didn't, I didn't think so. It didn't sound right to me. Um, What's one thing you would consider a non-negotiable in raising healthy daughters? This is going to sound perhaps weird, but I think girls need to be encouraged to disagree with their parents. And sons too, but we do it especially with girls as we teach compliance and obedience and submission so much. And if you want your daughter to be able to thrive as an adult, to be able to stand up for what she believes in and for what she needs as an adult, she needs to be able to disagree with her parents and without being punished. Um, and she needs to, to feel like her feelings matter. Like how often do, you know, let's say that, let's say that your daughter needs to clean her room and you're trying to get her to clean her room and she's got a real attitude about it. Is our attitude as parents to punish her for her attitude? Um, or is it to say, well, I really don't care what you think. You just need to clean your room (laughs) because often we get mad at our daughters if they show any kind of, um, upset attitude. But if they if they are cleaning, is it such a big deal? Like we spend a lot of time trying to control our kids' feelings because it makes us feel better. We don't want to deal with the awkwardness of a moody teenager. We don't want to deal with with what we perceive as disrespect necessarily. And I'm not saying that you need to let your daughter disrespect you, but she needs to be allowed to disagree and she needs to have her own feelings because she's never going to be able to thrive if she's always pushing down what she thinks. I think that's great advice, um, truly. And and I can I can say that my parents encouraged me to stand for myself and to make my decisions and advocate for myself. So I'm and I'm very thankful for that. And you know, as Colleen mentioned, she and I are, are moms moms of boys, right? Um, and so I, in the same way, I've encouraged my boys to be willing to say what they think. I, I tell them free, they're welcome, especially since I now have two, they're over 18. Welcome, disagree with me. Just, we can talk about it. It's okay. You don't, they don't have to agree with me on everything. Um, and that thing that's very important. So thank you for, for sharing that message. And as we're talking about, um, being moms of boys and others in our, our audience who either are, um, uh, single, unmarried, never had children, or um, are dads? Are there ways in which the book could be helpful or useful to people? Maybe those raised in purity culture, or, um, moms and dads, or moms of boys. Well, I think first of all, if you grew up especially as a millennial, a lot of us just need to read the book to reparent little fifteen-year-old me. Like this is what little fifteen-year-old me should have heard. <laughs> and and so many we have about a thousand women in our launch team, and so many of them were saying, "I'm just reading this for a little me." And even if they weren't moms yet, or or may never be moms, but it's it's useful just to understand. Um, why it is that you've had trouble in certain areas, what the roadblocks are for you in certain areas, and just seeing, 
Oh, I can trace it back to being taught that that makes so much sense. So I I think it can be very freeing in that sense. I think for moms of boys, the messages are all the same. They're just the flip side in many cases. And I think our boys need to be told, hey, guys, you can respect women. You are not a slave to your sexuality. And male sexuality and the objectification of girls and women are not one and the same thing. We have largely taught in evangelical circles that male sexuality means lusting after every woman and means uncontrollable lust, um, your sexuality being out of control. That is not biblical. There is nothing in the Bible that says that that lust is a sin that men will always battle that is worse than any other sin. Um, there is nothing in the Bible that says that men were created to lust. And yet this is what our evangelical literature has largely told boys. Um, I, I'm hoping to do a follow-up study on boys because I think this is so key, how we have largely taught guys that, first of all, noticing is the same as lusting, is what so many of them were taught. And it's not true at all. Just because you notice a girl is pretty does not mean you've lusted after her. Just because you've noticed her figure does not mean you've sinned. You know, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lust. So looking is deliberate action with lust is a deliberate mindset. If you notice, wow, she's got great curves. And then you go on with your day and don't think anything more of it. You have not sinned. And our boys need to be told that because a lot of them feel helpless. Like I saw she was pretty and I'm not supposed to do that. And so no matter where I look, I'm sinning. And that's simply not true. So I I think boys need to hear that. And boys also need to understand um, some of the things girls are being told and how harmful all of that is and how we can get through to the other side to something that's healthy. We've done a lot on just the teachings on men and women in the church. And I see this as just a great book for continuing. So, um, well, I will link the book in the in the episode notes and and also your website you actually have quite quite a bit of resources and on there too um thank you so much it's it's just excellent Sheila I think doing the surveys really um was kind of brought something unique in in both of the books so thank you for joining us yeah thank you it's been great to be here mm-hmm.